welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, Episode 11, The Integral Journey of Dr. Bob Weathers. Addiction, Recovery, and Healing. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is episode number 11, I believe, and of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. And uh, it's, it's been, it's, the whole podcast has been a, a remarkable journey. But if you remember last time we started talking about, uh, we were talking about the, the aqua map that is one of the essential things of, of uh, that makes integral recovery. You ask what integral recovery is, it's the map plus the practices to to negotiate the um, the terrain that is delineated by the maps. Mm-hmm. So last time we were talking about stages, which is probably the more one of the more complex parts of, of the map. And yeah, it's pretty complex. Why? Because reality is complex, you know. And there, somebody said there's a simple solution to every problem. It doesn't work, you know. <laughs> so it has to be complex enough to to contain everything that needs to be talked about. So the last time I was laying out spiral dynamics and something that was taken over, uh, taken over that was incorporated by Ken Wilbur, and it was built on Claire Graves and Don Beck's work. And the thing has evolved, um, and we as this thing uh, unfolds, this, we'll talk about it more. But let, let me simplify it to say, in, in very basic terms, the, the development levels are tracing egocentric development, right, at a very early stage, which means what do you care about at egocentric? Yourself. Yeah, number one. Wow. Okay. As you move to ethnocentric, it means your your circle of, of concern expands beyond to just yourself to your group, your people, your church, your sangha, the chosen people, however that one works out, right? Your race or your, you know, there's so many, your football team, there's so many different divisions of that. And so that's ethnocentric. There's more care, but people that are outside of that, or, you know, you see that happening in the United States, you know, let's keep those Muslims out, you know, because they're not quite totally human or something, you know, they're not like us good old American boys, girls over here. So from from that, you have a world centric, which means not you, you've, you're, you, it's not like you don't account for yourself anymore. It's like you don't count for your people, your country, your family, but you transcend and include that prior development. So you still care of the self, you still care for yours. But you, it's, it's expanded now to the whole world. It's got to be win, 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 win at some level, okay? And then beyond that, we when you're talking in second tier, even third tier and fourth tier, can explain to me one time, which I don't think I totally got. But anyway, you become cosmocentric. And your, your identification with and your, your, your care becomes the whole universe. And you're able to take multiple, multiple perspectives, not just, not just yours, not just your groups, not just... Uh, different groups, but it just expands to, you can see the world through the eyes of a dog or a bird or the water or the wind or something. There's a lot of stuff that goes on there. That's pretty amazing. So, so this stuff and, and one of the, what we really need now on a world boss scale is to get as many of us up to these worlds, uh, 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 worldwide perspective, this, the, the, uh, world centric, uh, ethical uh, development because then we can start taking care of each other and we can start solving all these problems because they have to be, it's a small planet. We have to be uh, solving these things uh, largely the, the macro things on a, on a world centric basis. 
However, the disease of addiction, which is such a bummer, takes us from whatever level we were at before we started, you know, getting our lives controlled by the drugs and takes us down into the basement, into very negative uh, ethno, uh, egocentric and even below in some cases. So, uh, yeah, so I'm just going to, my, my two brothers here, you know, have been engaged on their their journey of recovery and evolution and seeing the devolution. I just want to put it out to you, maybe Bob, you'll start us. How, how did this, can you see this kind of dynamic in your own, uh, your own journey into addiction and later out of addiction into recovery. Thank you, John. I'd like to defer to Doug, though. I think, Doug, you have something to share with us from Carl Jung, and then we can dive in from there. Carl, sorry, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, we have a quote here from Carl Jung that I wanted to share with everyone, and I think this introduces and very eloquently relates, describes uh, to what you were just talking about, John, with the increasing levels of inclusion, Carl Jung says, man can know himself only insofar as he can become conscious of himself. And that's certainly true. It relates to the shadow work that we do as a part of integral recovery practice. But as we move through the stages, we do so by increasing our capacity to take the perspectives. One of the best transformational practices that I have found is to take the role of another, to try and see things through the eyes of another. And as you do that, you do exactly what John was just discussing with us, which is expanding your view, your inclusion from my tribe, my family, my people, my race, my nation, my religion, to being able to see from the other side and how all these pieces fit together. You start to include the world-centric consciousness of science, science and reason, because there are certain things that are universally true. The law of gravity, for example, it doesn't matter what color I am or what I believe. If I go and drop a bowling ball, it's going to fall to the ground. And that is true everywhere. As we move through these and begin to see that there are different approaches to things and, and my religion, my tribe is not the only one that can possibly be right in the world. We open our ability to connect with others and thus understand ourselves and our place and grow into our ability to give and connect with the world. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. And yeah. And, and as we learn these maps, I mean, there, there are ways to help us reflect on ourselves. Oh yeah. I'm just really having an orange day or a blue day, or, you know, this is, you know, this is the, this is what my family was and what I grew up in. So that explains a lot, you know, in my own journey and stuff. So these are all self-reflective mirrors. We can look back and understand ourselves and others to be more effective and more compassionate. So Bob, I'll take it back to you. And the original question was, you know, how did you see yourself in your own value system reflected, uh, I guess, in your up and down, you know, moving up and down the spiral as affected by, by the disease of addiction and later the journey of, of integral recovery. Yeah. Thank you, John. I'd, I'd like to dive in and uh, you and Doug uh, inter interject as we go along here. I don't want to monopolize, but I, I'd like to kind of build out a story that I'm very familiar with. And it's really informed uh, Doug and John by what you just presented in the previous podcast, John, on, on uh, spiral dynamics and the levels. It's really, uh, really informed my own experience with addiction and, uh, and now in recovery. Um, the short version I grew up in a family that was really the epitome of orange. Uh, very bright parents. My father was biologically oriented psychiatrist. 
My mother was a very bright nursing professor. Um, the joke in my family, I was the only one that didn't go into the medical professions. My family was the medical model. <laughs> I was the only one. I, be, I got my PhD in psychology, so I was kind of the runt of the litter. <laughs> but the bottom line is he has this family that really values rationality and individualism um, to the extreme, and I'm really grateful for that. Both my brothers at the end of the 1960s went to UC Berkeley. Tony got involved in the Students for Democratic Society and the Weatherman. He was a radical. Uh, uh, Alan got involved in the gay liberation movement. My mom was in the first generation of feminism. Uh, this is what I grew up in. My father developed an alternative psychological, a psychiatric association. The American Psychiatric Association didn't match, and so he created the National Psychiatric Association. Just get a sense of a family moving into postmodern, what you talked about in terms of green. And so I grew up in an orange on, a, on its way to green kind of household. That's, uh, and there's a lot of good news in that. There's a lot of good news in that. I'm grateful for all of that, um, all of those foundations. I studied my ass off through school. It was very bright, achieved a lot in school. And uh, then, then things began to, to fall apart. And John, you and I are contemporaneous with each other. You'll remember this, and you've actually referenced it. Um, uh, my oldest brother, Tony, wrote me from Altamont Festival in a December of 1969. August of 69 was the Woodstock Festival, Peace, Love, Three Days. And Tony didn't make it there, but he made it to Altamont. And this was the kind of the beginning of the fall of the, the love generation. I used to go up and spend time with Tony and Alan in Golden Gate Park. Summer of Love, all of that was very powerful impact on me as a little junior high school guy. Yeah, right. Me too, and, as a little junior high school guy. Yeah, and the things went to hell in a handbasket, and it's symbolized by Altamont, where there were Rolling Stones hired Hell's Angels as bodyguards, and they killed people, and it was it was a big freaking mess. But even more to the point is both, both my brothers uh, were part of a subculture, in addition to being involved politically, were both very activists, uh, were uh, uh, hallucinogens, uh, drugs, but particularly hallucinogens, dropping acid, so which is kind of par for the course. Um, and uh, it took my oldest brother out. It took my oldest brother out. So the saddest story for me in my life is the loss of my oldest brother, Tony, to uh, drugs. You, you want to you kind of just give the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very poignant story, and it makes me want to weep. I just remember mm -hmm. what, what exactly happened. Yeah. Uh, Tony was, in many ways, my surrogate father. My father was very preoccupied professionally, and so Tony was six years older than I, and so he really mentored me uh, as an older male. And he was a, uh, he, uh, my father used to say of all the kids, Tony was the brightest. That's probably true. Um, um, uh, and uh, he was a journalism major at Berkeley and got very actively involved in mescaline and, and uh, mushrooms and, and, uh, Acid. He used to send me drugs in the mail. <laughs> this little, little kid. It, you can begin to see the loss of a group there in a sense yeah. of that. But but uh, uh, Tony lost his mind owing to hallucinogens. He just and he kept using and became more and more psychotic, and uh, and never recovered from that. And, <clears throat> uh, became very paranoid about the family. My father, who was the psychiatrist, was out to get my brother and so on. Tony confided all of this in me and he, he uh, eventually uh, uh, split off from the family uh, because he didn't trust anybody in the family. And there's always some psychological truth to that. <laughs> but he was, he was flagrantly psychotic. And, um, uh, and
and then he disappeared. And uh, my father, who was uh, very involved in the state of California and politics and so on, was able to utilize you know the highest sources you can for tracking somebody down. It is possible to disappear, yeah. just remove your footprint completely. And Tony did that. And how old were you when you disappeared? The last time I saw Tony, I was uh, uh, nineteen, and so that was uh, that was almost fifty years ago. And so uh, he's never been seen or heard of. Uh, I've operated as if he's dead, but he yeah. might not be. Yeah. Chances are that he is. And, and psychologically, uh, he's not dead to me at all. It's just, you know, it's one of these, you know, we all carry these scars. John, I know you do too. Yeah. Um, and, and I was and just reflecting, got, you know, my older brother was very, very close to committing yeah. suicide. And I was thinking that as horrendous as that is, just the disappearance and the not knowing might even be worse if possible. Yeah. I, 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 I can't compare it, John, because of yeah. what you witnessed, right, right. but, 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 I, but I, it's, it's, it's been a source of great suffering for me. Um, I could say more into that, but let me weave it back in. There's a lot yeah. of feeling there and I hope that it's coming through. Um, as shit began to fall apart for me, I began myself to, to not trust orange and certainly not trust green. And so the, the modernism of my family and even the postmodernism, uh, uh, it was suspect to me because uh, there was a lot of pathology in my family. And then there was what was going on with, with my, uh, and particularly my oldest brother, Tony, my next older brother, Alan, also had his own host of issues, uh, problems that were arising. And so I retreated probably predictably, and John, our stories are parallel this way, I believe as well. I retreated to Christian fundamentalism and at an age where a lot of teenagers are beginning to kind of stretch their wings and experiment with drugs and so on. I experimented with Jesus and uh, it really held me together for, for, I was thinking of it just last night for about five years. I can date it as about a five year period at the end of high school and into college where I held my shit together as a function of fundamentalist religion. I married in that religion and uh, thought I was good to go and put my family behind me, really out of sight, out of mind. I actually preached a sermon one time, John, based on the song that was popular at that point by Carly Simon, Haven't Got Time for the Pain. Speaking of spiritual bypassing. So, um, um, and so that, that, that's all, that's how it went, you guys. I, uh, I, uh, Went, uh, had to uh, change my major. I was a pre-law major, changed my major to psychology and religious studies and uh, got two degrees undergraduate and then went to graduate school and got a master's degree in religious studies and a doctorate in clinical psychology. And I was on my way. Uh, the problem that arose that arose very early in graduate school for me is that that was a temporary fix for me, retreating to blue to uh, mythic membership, uh, 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 kind of conventional morality and so on. But I had a pre-morbid condition, let's say, of being at green, orange and green. And so soon enough, the set point began to arise and it began to, uh, the, uh, I think of Alice in Wonderland, the, the box was too small for me and it began to burst through that. I was going to a Christian seminary and it was a really bad fit for me as I began to develop because it was a conservative Christian seminary. I had the singular honor, John, you know this and Doug probably too, of doing a dissertation. My doctoral dissertation at a Christian seminary was on Buddhist meditation. 
This was not the kind of Christian seminary that was okay with the Buddhist part <laughs> or with the meditation part. <laughs> and so, you, so I kind of carried the spirit of my brothers. Both of my brothers were really uh, radical, and I carried a fair bit of that imprint. My parents were. It was just an odd thing, a whole family. And uh, I began to, in fact, when I moved into conservative Christianity, my parents' response was, how did we fail him? How could it, how, it was, there was a sense of failure and it really to put it in spiral dynamics language. Bob is devolved to, to blue. We somehow really missed the, missed the boat with him. And uh, things began to shift for me as I began to be more compensated. Literally, my marriage, I think, helped me. My faith helped me. And it helped me to move then to transcend, I think, and to move back into. I had, a, about a, I had about a year in graduate school where I was like a rank materialist. And I was actually studying philosophical materialism. That was my atheist phase. And, uh, and that was too small of a container. And so what began to call for me, this is about 1980, what began to call for me, John, you know this story was uh, was Eastern religions. And so I began to read, and I read a lot. And then one day I put the book down, realizing, you know, reading isn't quite exactly what they're talking about here. And so that's when I started the meditative path, and that began in 1980. Um, and that continued on uh, uh, for me as I continued to develop. I was, you know, steeped in Ken Wilber's writings, as we've talked about before, steeped in in uh, Buddhist practice, speak, steeped really in an integral practice. I mean, I was, this is before there was writing about this, but I was really committed to physical well-being, cognitive development, spiritual development, soul development, shadow, all of that stuff was, was work I was doing. And I was uh, actually quite, um, quite rigorous about it comprehensively. I, I just, it, there wasn't a language for it, but that's what I was doing. You can just get a sense of the, the uh, Jung called it the daemon, and something inside just, really was pushing me towards, towards development. But I missed one significant piece, and this will get to the addictive piece, is I, um, I, missed, I missed working on the trauma. I, I, I didn't do sufficient work on the trauma of my background. There's a lot of, of abuse, a lot of neglect, a lot of loss, all of this. And we all have our versions of that, and I have my version of it. But, and I wasn't aware of bypassing it. I was in a doctoral psychology program. I was in therapy, and I just did as much work as I could do, but I didn't do sufficient work. And so parallel with this process was a long-term acquaintanceship with altered states uh, by, by uh, virtue of chemistry, dating back to right after high school, the story that we shared in one of our recent podcasts of my first experience of alcohol. And so alcohol began to kind of impinge increasingly. It was just this very gradual process over the next couple of decades, uh, starting with alcohol and then, then at around age 40 or 45, beginning to experiment with, with uh, uh, more powerful substances than alcohol, uh, experimenting with marijuana, then eventually cocaine and eventually ecstasy. That was a kundalini awakening for me. Sure. And that reveals the other part of it, you guys, is that that one of the problems with a post-conventional uh, uh, or post-egoic dedication, I was dedicated to that, is that it's, it's not unusual for Green to make a mistake. And I really see this in Spiral Dynamics. For Green to m make a mistake and equate anything that's not orange with green and, um, right. and to reject, and you sure as hell want to reject blue, all of its small-mindedness. And I began to become more and more some combination of red and green, the yes. way that I understand it. We'll talk more about this, but what looked like post-conventional grooviness and transcendental insight and kundalini this and 
chakra that was some combination of genuine spiritual uh, uh, strivings. There's no doubt about that. But also uh, with some really kind of, I began to kind of mix up instinct with transcendence. I don't know. And instinct isn't bad, but it, but if, if, if it begins to lead the show, there's no ego running the show. So I, to put it in Ken's pre-trans fallacy language, yeah. uh, uh, I was moving from an ego of orange uh, into a, trend, a, a, a trans ego green. And actually on the way to integral had, uh, uh, aspirations to that, but but also was moving up the way Ken puts it is everything that's not ego. Uh, how does he put it, John? <laughs> everything that's not ego is necessarily transcendent to ego, and so I was I was at the same time operating with trans ego green. I was also operating with pre-ego red, and I got them hopelessly confused. So I was hanging out with spiritual people who were getting fucked up on drugs. That's the yeah. truth of it. And I was, yeah. I was the leader of the pack. So uh, things derailed pretty quickly. And soon enough, what you talked about uh, took over for me. And that's where I, I understand addiction really in its etymological sense of, of addictus in Latin just means slave. And I became enslaved wow. to really? substance. And I became enslaved to a pre-egoic state that was mistaking it for a trans-egoic state. So as I got more and more down the tube of uh, addiction, I kept uh, insisting that it was spiritual. I literally would use drugs, alcohol one night, wake up the next morning and go meditate and did not see a uh, hypocrisy, did not right. see a, uh, a, a conflict between them. And, and uh, that's one of, the, one of the characteristics of addiction. To put it in addiction language is I became more and more hypofrontal, which is less and less access to my frontal cortex, began to interpret things through my limbic system, through mm -hmm. the lower, more primitive parts of the brain. And so I had a very limbic spirituality, a very limbic sexuality, and uh, was was really uh, uh, interpreting that, really. I mean, if you'd asked me, I was interpreting that as spirituality. It took really hitting bottom, to put it in the 12-step language, it took really hitting bottom for me to, uh, for I was on the verge of losing everything. I lost my reputation, lost my license in psychology, lost my career, nearly lost my primary relationship, certainly lost marriage, yeah. et cetera. And it was, the loss was so much so that it stopped me and there's a problem uh, and, and that was the recognition. That was uh, 10 years ago. In the last 10 years, uh, I've tried different approaches to sobriety, including harm reduction. <laughs> I'm just not a harm reduction kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was Some just reading. No. I was reading the big book in AA just this week. I'm studying it right now, uh, very slowly, in an integral, uh, uh, with an integral wish. And uh, the term that was used this week was: uh, some people are enthusiasts. And I thought, John, you know me. <laughs> An enthusiast is probably going to have a little bit of a problem with harm reduction. It's just way too subtle. And so it's moved a, a journey uh, towards and, and to abstinence, as well as a tremendous amount of shadow uh, work. And I mean, very specifically, deep trauma work in yeah. multiple therapeutic forms, in addition to my own uh, daily work over the last five to 10 years. Um, to be able to kind of begin to pull back up. I'll finish the journey as we talk about this over time, because I do think it has implications for um, what communities suffice for the work. But my first reference community coming out of addiction was Blue, was AA. And, yeah. and uh, I worked the steps uh, 
really hardcore because I typically do that because I'm an enthusiast with a sponsor and in good faith uh, and spent a good two or three years really in that. I continue in AA, some involvement leading a home meeting once a week, but uh, my involvements have become more inclusive. So that includes other things that we'll talk more about. But coming out of the red, and then I'll finish for now, coming out of the red that mistook itself for green, I needed blue. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, the foundational work that makes this conversation possible is uh, I'm deeply indebted to AA and to the 12-step movement for that. I'm really grateful for that. I'm deeply indebted to fundamentalist Christianity. It, it got me through the crisis yeah. of what happened in my family and got me... Got me on the way towards a, a full-bodied spirituality. Those roots are in fundamentalist Christianity. So I want to be careful about ever demonizing these that came before me. They are the shoulders on which I stand right now. That's my story for now. How's that, you guys? No, that's brilliant and very Thank complex. So, so much. much in there. And, you know, not only, I mean, the story is you lost your brother. You know, your brother just wandered off. He just got, that's what happened to not most of us, but substantial number of us who were experimenting with these psychoactive substances with, without any wisdom, without any guidance, with, you know, just, and, and just lost our minds and we went away. John, you know that I work every week with, uh, I lead a couple of groups at a local treatment center. Doug, uh, you, uh, you know this too, is that something I'll say to you guys in the spirit of honoring my brother Tony is uh, uh, every group I lead, I'm doing that for Tony. Awesome. Yeah, he's right there. And, and I want to say, too, I was, you know, I was falling into using drugs and psychedelics and, you know, just anything at that, uh, when I was 13 or 14. And again, it was a fundamentalist Christianity, mm. basically born-again experience that mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. kind of kept me safe from all that for eight years when yeah. I really needed to be safe from that. Yeah, and, you know, Christianity not bad. Bad Christianity is bad. You know, there are versions of Christianity that are very hateful. And just, you know, I don't think they have anything to do with the teachings of Jesus. But, you know, people can take anything and make it, you know, awful. I mean, Buddhism can become a disaster. You know, anything that that, that doesn't really, uh, that, that is not, uh, where there's not compassion, humility, and honesty, and access to the source of, of the whole spiritual impulse, you know, yeah, a, a, a true mysticism that's available to all its members in a good way. So, yeah. And, and, and I also, and as we transcend and include, I've never left behind the uh, Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> it's like, it's always right, right there. And I don't know who Jesus was, that historical guy, man, but he, he nailed it. Whatever came down through us, through the, through the writings that, that exist. And, mm -hmm. and, and there's an internal presence too, that you run into when you do uh, internal, you know, meditation and prayer, and this deep stuff. So it is a mystery. And yeah, my life was saved by it. And then of course I was in a group that became very cult-like and more and more toxic. And I had to, you know, we, I said, God, it took us like, uh, 10 years to do what the early Christians took them 300 years to get that fucked up, you know? So we were really, and it was probably always there in the beginning, but, but it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And, and as I've grown, I've been able to go back and honor that and re-own the, the real stuff, you know, and kind of uh, uh, separate it from, from the stuff that wasn't so good. And that's what we get to do. We get to go back at, at, at an integral level, go back and do some archeology span through the levels we've been through. And it's like, Ooh, 
you know, I blasted through orange into green. I had to go back. I'm still doing that. I have to go back and get some of the stuff I missed in my, in my motoring through orange, you know, from blue to, to green and go back and learn some of those values and go back and re-own the strengths of not only blue, but, you know, the warrior courage of red and, and the, the uh, shamanistic uh, connection to nature that our ancestors had that, that we've lost in modernism and scientism and a lot of other things. So there's all... There's good foundational stuff in all these things that we we have to go back and eventually you know, pick apart. Well, this is ain't so good. Capitalism is done. You know, modernism and great stuff. It's also really you know messed up a lot of things too. So how do how do we shape that into a healthy version in ourselves and in the world at large? And that's part of the part of the journey. So. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, John. Bob, I am so grateful that you shared all of that too. Um, there were a lot of things in there that that moved me and and as i will share in a later episode too there are certainly some parallels there and some differences but your experience of moving through it and particularly i am inspired by your ability to take perspective on it now and look at those things and understand those things now through a lens that was impossible while you were suffering through it. I uh, recognized myself so much in your discussion of the the pre-trans fallacy and the combination of green and red that was happening for that time at you. Um, certainly, I experienced that as well. And I, I spent a lot of time in orange. Orange was an important place for me, and I was simultaneously in green. Again, I'll, I'll share that later but uh that combination is interestingly manifested in addiction the ability to feel like you're one place and certainly be operating from another that um i guess plays into the concept of lines too you can be very highly evolved in certain lines and then acting from a moral center of gravity with much lower development yeah hugely important point yeah, that's good. That's good, Doug. Yeah, yeah. I, at one level, you could say that I was spiritually more and more uh, refined and attuned. It's a kind of a false dichotomy, but if you separate out that spiritual development, I mean, I was dedicated practitioner of uh, Zen meditation through all, all of this um, uh, with a few gaps, but not very many. And my, my uh, morality was moving from post-conventional to conventional to pre-conventional to pre-pre-conventional. And you, thought you, were, you thought you were up at the leading edge of evolution. I thought I was a moral actually. giant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was a moral midget, and that's not even fair to midgetry. Yeah. Uh, there's another thought I had, Doug, as you were talking to it. I want to toss this out just as a thought that we'll, we'll uh, fill in. Uh, it was something, it was your response to me, Doug. Um, that reminded me is that, uh, John, you've, you've presented this model and you've articulated it so well here and speaking in real time, as well as in your book, is that a good bit of what I struggled with, and it's been so much an emphasis of my work in the last several years, working uh, uh, with addicts who are early in recovery, is uh, to address shame. Uh, the shame which just paralyzes, paralyzed me. And there's plenty of societal stigma to support that shame. And so it's a really deadly mix. And I do a lot of teaching uh, about this every week, actually. The book that I'm working on right now that will come out in the, towards the end of the year, which is an integral book 
on recovery will, will include a significant piece on addressing shame from an integral perspective. But what occurs to me, uh, and John, I'm looking at you thinking of this, is that the model, the map, has really helped me to adopt a third-person perspective and look at my behavior and take it less as some indication of being uh, uh, defective or an aberration or whatever. You know, Ken Wilbur in his model, what you've written, John, and yours and other writers in the integral field, I've taken that in and it's really been a, a powerful antidote um, uh, against the shame, which is any addict in recovery. When I ask addicts in recovery, when we define shame and get inside of it, ask them how many of them struggle with that in and around their addiction, it's universal. Every person and severe shame. And so I think that this map itself is salutary. I feel like that it's speaking of psychoactive and it's been really important for me. So Doug, when you mentioned my own articulation of it, that articulation has been life-saving for me to have a model that's sufficient to explain what happened in a somewhat objective way. And it's not about excusing me, but it's also about me finding some means of dealing with my recovery beyond just being paralyzed by shame. Yeah. And I, I think the good information, I think the integral model uh, 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 epitomizes that for me. Good information frees just as shame paralyzes. So, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and, and shame, we just, it's kind of a, a simple way of looking, but shame is like, I'm essentially flawed. I am bad by my very nature. Guilt, on the other hand, I did something bad and I feel bad about that, which is a good thing. If you do bad, you should feel bad. Therefore, you'll clean up your mess or you won't do it again or something like that. But shame is just, I'm bad. And that is such a trigger to relapse, you know, because if you don't have a way to go in and go into the darkness and get through it and find fundamentally the the bomb at all, you know, that you're insanely good just as everything else is too. And, and to feel that, and that is a hopeful story. And it's like, okay, I should stay alive. But if you're just like, I just deserve to suffer. I suck. I'm so bad. And like I said, um, many times every relapse begins with a case of the fuck it, you know, and there's nothing that will bring, um, uh, uh, relapse on any faster than shame. Just, I fucking hate myself. And so this is a good way to, to kill myself, yeah. you know? Yeah. I and, don't deserve uh, to recover anyway, because I am yeah. a terrible person. You know, Bob, I uh, struggled very deeply with shame, too. And so hearing that gives me some hope. And and I really look forward to continuing to discuss that with you now and in future episodes of the podcast as we go on. I think that that's one of the things that will benefit a lot of people. Good, um, good. So, so I'm really yeah. looking forward to that and yeah, learning some so. of the techniques from you. Shadow practice and working with that, because it's so deeply rooted, is a very challenging and ongoing process that we can continue to work on for the remainder of our lives. It's as if the poor get poorer is that uh, there's enough research to suggest that most people that are prone to addiction have significantly more adverse childhood experiences. That's the term. And associated with adverse childhood experiences is some form of shame. It's just, they go hand in hand. And so it's my shame that, that, uh, uh, that sets me up or predisposes me for addiction and my addiction itself. You, you know, if you're an addict, and also, I should say, if you're in early recovery, it's not a compliment. <laughs> in other words, it's not a cool thing to be an addict uh, in our society or any society. And to be in recovery is to suggest that you're an addict. So you're you're attached to being a loser no matter whether you're in recovery or being an addict. It, it also so uh, infers 
uh, some integrity and honesty, yeah. which uh, most of us haven't even achieved. So yeah, yeah. I see it as yeah. I, I do yeah. see it as a badge of honor. Yeah, um, and, so, and, and and so we have to find ways. I think it's implied what you were just saying, Joe. We have to find find ways to reverse that. I think that 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 what we're doing right here is a case of flipping around where the rich get richer. Is as soon as I can find some gravity, some kind of. Um, some kind of foundation for beginning to make at least one millimeter of movement out of my shame, uh, that, that then gives me a foundation for, for I'm thinking of the trajectory of, of aiming at a target. I'm not good at this, but if there's a target here, there's a target here, and I'm aiming at it, if I'm off by a millimeter, I can miss the whole thing I can, by the time I get there. And so it's critical that you have some corrective because shame will take us off track and we won't successfully recover. So I'm going to find some way to correct it to stay on track with that. And I think good models are a good start. One of the, I mentioned this before, a social psychologist, Kurt Lewin, said, there's nothing so practical as a good theory. And integral theory to me is par excellence yeah. uh, practical. It's, I mean, it, it, is, it is a fantastic theory. And if I can use that as some antidote against the shame that would kill me, that would paralyze me and move towards recovery uh, free of shame, that's the key. I actually, I'm working on, on working titles for the book, but one of the titles for the book is just shame-free, just shame-free, an integral perspective on recovery. We'll see how that all evolves, but, but I, I really see this as central. Let me say one more piece before we finish, you guys, and that is, uh, I might have summarized this before, but I'm going to summarize it today. Is that did I just mention this? I can't remember because I think I might have mentioned this yesterday at the at the at the uh, treatment center. Is that in a study of of uh, uh, what is the number one trigger for relapse is stress. The number one stressor for most people is relationship, and specifically in relationship. And this comes from a study out of Harvard. It was a, a, an analysis of 200 studies. The number one relational stressor is threat to social acceptance. That's that's related to the highest cortisol release. 200 studies. The highest cortisol release of all is related to threat to social acceptance. By any other term, that's shame. Shame pulls me out of connection with the community. And so if you think about, if you do the math on this, the number one threat to my sobriety is stress, is relational stress, is shame. And so when we talk about this, this is like, this is pure gold that we're talking about. Yeah. We can find some way to turn that around. The rich will get richer. My recovery will be supported by this. And it's by the kind of clarity that we're talking about right now. I'm, I'm looking at infinite depth as we begin this discussion and we could really go on and we shall go on in the, in the next episode. But that was uh, incredibly beautiful, incredibly insightful and incredibly humble and loving and painful and gorgeous all at the same time. So really deep bow. Really appreciate it. And, uh, We'll see you guys, uh, you guys and gals, brothers and sisters, uh, uh, next time. Thanks, John. God bless. Thanks, Thank Doug. you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.